Coming up on Tech Nation, science has studied how to calm our minds. Chris Bailey joins me to point out that humans love dopamine, that caffeine is essentially liquid stress, and that burnout is much more than just being exhausted. Science says so, so it must be true. Then, teaching our immune systems to recognize tumors in our bodies and then eliminate them. Bolt Biotherapeutics CEO, Dr. Randy Schatzman, talks about the role of myeloid cells and how nearly two dozen forms of HER2-related cancers are being studied. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2011, I interviewed Columbia University professor Brian Greene, the author of The Hidden Reality, Parallel Universes, and the Deep Laws of the Cosmos. I asked him what he meant by parallel or multiple universes. Well, there was a time until pretty recently that whenever we use the word universe, we had the traditional notion in mind, everything, you know, the whole totality. And what's happened in physics in the last couple of decades is we've been led to ideas that suggest that what we thought to be everything is a real tiny part of a much bigger whole in which our universe would be perhaps one of many universes. And that's what's led to this idea of multiverse, multiple universes. You know, I think it was over 10 years ago that Sir Martin Rees, who I believe is now Lord Martin Rees, he came and was talking about multiverse, you know, and it was the first time that I'd really heard about it. And I have to tell you, there were a number of people, there were sort of two reactions. One were the science fiction people saying, we told you so, we told you so. And then there was this other set of people who were really quite upset by what he was saying. Yes, Martin was one of the early proponents of this idea. And it is a surprising one. It is one that does seem at first sight, perhaps even to step outside of science. I mean, if what we see out in the cosmos is all we have access to, if all we have access to is our universe, in what scientific sense can you talk about other universes? Can you visit them? Can you experiment? Can you observe them? And if not, are you still doing science? This is not a fringe idea in physics any longer. Many people are spending a lot of time thinking about this idea. If it's not right, a lot of energy is being wasted. But if it is correct, I mean, think about it. This would be the biggest revolution in our thinking about reality that we've ever encountered, our universe being one of many. Holy moly. Well, Martin Rees had that very simple argument. Hey, we had one Big Bang. Why wouldn't there be more? That is the simplest argument for how you could come to this idea. And it goes even further than that. Because when you think about the Big Bang Theory, we all have in mind that the universe began very small and then erupted with space going through this rapid expansion and matter coalescing into stars and galaxies. But there's an aspect of the Big Bang Theory that we don't emphasize enough, which is the traditional Big Bang Theory tells us nothing about what happened at the very beginning. It doesn't tell us what happened at time zero. And we've been struggling to fill in the bang in the Big Bang Inflationary cosmology, as it's called, is a proposal for filling in the bang. And when you study the mathematics of this approach, 
it leads to that very idea that Martin was talking about, that the Big Bang was not a unique event, that there could be many Big Bangs happening all over the universe, each giving rise to its own cosmos. So our everything would be the result of one Big Bang, but there'd be other everythings coming from the other Big Bangs. Some of the parallel universes, uh, the holographic universes, though, that's those are pretty interesting. That's the strangest of all of the multiverse proposals, I have to tell you. It comes out of string theory. And the idea is that according to the math of string theory, everything that we see in the world around us may be in some sense a holographic projection of laws of physics that operate on some distant bounding surface that surround us. And we, we call it a holographic idea because you're familiar with an ordinary hologram. What is that? Well, that's a, a little piece of plastic that has all these etches and swirls on it. You illuminate it with a laser and that creates a realistic three-dimensional image. The idea is that the distant bounding surface where the laws of physics may actually reside would be like the thin piece of plastic and then the laws of physics themselves illuminate in a way that creates the three-dimensional reality that we're familiar with. So the idea would be as I move my hand or scratch my head there's a parallel process that's happening on this distant surface that in some sense may even be more fundamental than the reality that we experience. You've been listening to a 2011 Tech Nation interview with Brian Green. Dr. Green continues to be a professor at Columbia University, where he directs the Institute for Strings, Cosmology, and Astroparticle Physics. His most recent book was just published in February 2020. It's entitled, Until the End of Time, Mind, Matter, and Our Search for Meaning. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, I speak with Chris Bailey about how to calm your mind, find presence and productivity in anxious times. We talk about what science has to say about how to calm your mind and why you should do so. Then in biotech, Dr. Randy Schatzman, the CEO of Bolt Biotherapeutics, talks about their efforts to teach the immune system to recognize and eliminate solid tumors. All manner of HER2-related cancers are being considered. TechNation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global. On the web at mindk.com. And now, Chris Bailey. Well, Chris, welcome to TechNation. It is nice to hang out with you. How are you? I'm just great. And, you know, I know your name from people who write about productivity uh, and getting organized. And yet you describe yourself as one of the laziest mm -hmm. people you will ever meet. Mm -hmm. What gives? Well, this is what makes me into productivity in the first place. I've, I've always been obsessed with using what limited time and attention and energy we have every day in order to accomplish as much as we can in a short amount of time. And I think that's why productivity exists. You know, we need some 
North Star when it comes to, to consuming advice like this. And in my opinion, productivity advice exists to allow us to make back time. Uh, so we have more time for what's meaningful so we can spend time manifesting whatever it is that we happen to value. Uh, I think that's the purpose of productivity. And so that feeds into that idea that laziness is okay. I think I think we're all kind of lazy to to some extent. And I, I want to find ways of embracing that in what I do and and what I practice. Are you are you a lazy person? Would you describe yourself? Well you know, there's times when I'm I'm pretty darn lazy, yeah. but then they say, look at all you've accomplished yeah. and I go, hmm, well, yeah. I guess I must have gotten out of my seat once or twice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I guess that's it. <laughs> yeah. And often we look lazy when we're thinking or when we're ideating. I have or... to remember that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Mom, I'm not, uh, I, I'm ideating. Yes. <laughs> not not, not laying lazy. on the couch. I'm ideating. Yes, ideating. Yeah. Well, I almost passed your book up. I mean, how to calm my mind or how to calm your mind. What kind of woo is this? And then I realized you studied the science. You looked all over for the science. Oh, I said, well, got to have him on. Science studies calm. Yeah, it's well, calm is a fascinating topic as it relates to the actual research, because uh, I thought, OK, I'm going through a period of anxiety. I was going through a period of burnout at the time. I'm going to find calm. I'm going to do whatever I can to introduce some modicum of calm into my life. And very quickly, I was surprised at just how little exists on the subject of calm. Uh, calm is not an independent construct that's studied by researchers. And there's very little research out there that's been conducted on the topic for that reason. But the best research that I could find on this topic uh, shows that calm and anxiety actually live on the same spectrum as one another. And so we think of, you know, if we're going through an anxious time, we think of the opposite of having anxiety as having no anxiety, being free from anxiety. Uh, but the spectrum doesn't really go from high anxiety to no anxiety as we think, but it goes from high anxiety all the way past the point of no anxiety in the middle, all the way down to a high state of calm. High calmness is at the bottom of this spectrum. Uh, we relate to our thoughts in a positive way and our mind is less agitated. Those are the two variables that differ. Uh, but I, I agree just completely fundamentally with, with the premise of your question is um, we need pragmatic nonfiction books to be based on science. They should be based on how our brain is wired, how uh, how we're wired to behave by default, so we can work within the bounds of whatever constraints that we have throughout the day, whether that be limited time or general laziness or a mind that is uh, not really programmed to thrive with a lot of aspects of the modern world. Well, being human isn't easy. Uh, what's this about our constant desire for dopamine? Yeah. So this, uh, this was a fascinating thing. There's so many things that I found worth uh, deconstructing over the process of writing this book. And one of them was that desire for dopamine, uh, especially as it relates to the element of novelty in what we pay attention to throughout the day. Uh, there is what we, what researchers call a novelty bias embedded with 
within the prefrontal cortex of our brain, the logical center of our brain, by which for every new and novel thing we direct our attention at, our mind rewards us with a hit of dopamine, this uh, neurochemical that uh, makes us feel as though pleasure is right around the corner. It never makes us feel pleasurable in the moment or present in the moment or focused in the moment. Uh, it does aid some creative processes and, and some focus processes, but it's primarily a chemical of distraction and stimulation. And so we go to Instagram, we get a hit of dopamine. We go to email, uh, we get another hit of dopamine. And because of this, our mind is uh, very stimulated throughout the day. And uh, when we stimulate our mind in a threatening way, this breeds anxiety. And so it's connected with chronic stress too. And it's in this way that a lot of what we tend to throughout the day, because it's stimulating, also stresses us out. It can also cause burnout and anxiety, uh, even though what is often stressful uh, becomes familiar and, and comfortable. It's, it's odd how comfortable we can become with the various stressors of our life, I found. Yeah, as in everybody. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, now, here we get into some of the science. Oh, yeah. The sum of dopamine during the day, mm -hmm. this it adds up to your stimulation height. Yeah. Altitude. Yeah. yeah. You add them all up. And, and I guess speaks to your tolerance or intolerance of, of all the stressors in your life. Yeah, and that's the fascinating thing about dopamine is even though we never truly feel as though we've arrived on what we're spending our time on when our behavior is driven by dopamine, in the moment, we find dopamine almost impossible to resist and our mind gravitates towards it. Ooh, ooh, dopamine. <laughs> ooh, look, squirrel, Moira. There's a squirrel right there. Um, and, so, and so we... we fly at a high altitude of stimulation. So we can kind of plot all of the different things we pay attention to over the course of the day on a chart of sorts. Uh, it, we can call it altitudes of stimulation. So the more dopamine something releases, in other words, uh, largely based on novelty. So the more novel something is, the higher it is on a height of stimulation. And when we add up the various activities and habits and rituals that we tend to throughout the day, we can approximate an average amount of dopamine that the habits that we invest in lead to the release of. And the higher the altitude that we fly at, at the very top of these altitudes of stimulation are uh, news and social media updates and these highly novel things, often that are what scientists call super stimuli, these highly processed, exaggerated versions of something that we're wired biologically to enjoy, uh, primitively to enjoy. Uh, but when we fly at such a high altitude, we find it very, very difficult to focus on whatever it is that we're doing. Uh, time moves faster for us. We find it difficult to pay attention to the most meaningful experiences of our life, to conversations with friends, with loved ones. We find it difficult to focus on work often because what we're trying to do, what our intention is to do in the moment is far less stimulating than something that we gravitate towards more like a, another hit of dopamine on social media or the news. Uh, but a, a calm mind is a productive mind because it allows us to fly at that lower stimulation height where the most meaningful and fruitful things that we can spend our time on exist. You know, the, the writing that we do, the connection that we do, and we can enjoy our lives more too. We find it 
far easier to savor everyday experiences when we come down. So yeah, this, this idea of the altitudes of stimulation, it's, um, it's a simple idea, but it's a great way of understanding our starting point for finding calm and overcoming anxiety and burnout. Well, you have a graph and uh, it shows various altitudes for various activities. There's a line in the middle. Everything below it is writing, cooking, reading, everything above it, digital stuff, social media. And at the very top, drinking alcohol. Yeah. That doesn't calm you down. That rises you up. If only, if only it could truly calm us down. You know, when we drink alcohol and caffeine for that matter too, uh, we experience a huge dopamine surge in our brain. And I I am, by the way, just in case people are about to switch the the station, I'm not advocating against the use of alcohol or caffeine, especially when we- You you mentioned wine numerous times during this book. Yes, I I do. (laughs) I enjoy a nice glass of wine. My my wife and I love having our board game nights and uh, often- we call them dopamine nights where we tend to distraction. <laughs> um, you, you know, it, you know, when we indulge intentionally, it, it produces a lot of, uh, a, a lot of meaning and, and great experience and, and enjoyment. But we have to recognize also that, uh, alcohol, caffeine release a huge dopamine surge in our brain. And it, it's actually quite fascinating. If you have a, a glass or two of wine, you will find that because you're at a higher altitude of stimulation that you gravitate more to distraction. Uh, it's actually a, a fascinating experiment to conduct. Have a glass or two of wine, maybe, you know, and, and just see if you have the impulse to pick up your phone. And caffeine is very similar where uh, that about doubles the amount of uh, dopamine that is released in our brain in the moment. Uh, It also actually doubles the level of cortisol that's released, which is a a primary stress hormone. So in a way, caffeine can be thought of as liquid stress. Uh, It also uh, approximately, and it depends on the dose and the individual, of course, uh, but an average dose also doubles the amount of adrenaline that's released in us. So caffeine can be thought of as liquid stress and actually uh, swapping out my coffee for a green tea every day. I'm a big fan of jasmine green tea. Um, is a, is a great way to find calm while uh, obtaining that energy boost uh, because green tea and matcha uh, and black tea, for that matter, too, they contain a, a substance called L-theanine, which calms our mind. It, it reduces that adrenaline spike while leading us to be more focused. And so it, it's this fascinating thing that when you zoom out, Pretty much everything we do throughout the day influences how anxious, burnt out, and calm we feel uh, when you really look at the science behind something. We need to approach this subject from, uh, you know, I I dare use the word holistic, uh, understanding about the topic because of how much uh, influences it. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Chris Bailey. You may know him from his books, including Hyperfocus and The Productivity Project. He's here today with How to Calm Your Mind, Finding Presence and Productivity in Anxious Times. Well, who is Christina Maslach, and what does she have to say? Yeah, so uh, Christina Maslach is one of the most fascinating researchers that I encountered in this journey to calm myself. And this was the advantage about being able to write a book on the subject of calm is uh, I could basically 
reach out to world-renowned researchers like Christina herself and ask them questions to in the hopes of improving my own situation and learning from their advice and their research firsthand. And in my opinion, uh, Christina is the world's foremost expert on the subject of burnout. Uh, her story is also fascinating. Before she even touched the subject of burnout, before the name burnout was even coined, uh, she uh, she would uh, encounter that that infamous Stanford Prison experiment. Um, so the Stanford prison experiment, it, the infamous experiment, uh, essentially had some participants assume the role of prisoners and others as prison guards. And the guards famously turned abusive towards the prisoners, and they adopted these roles as almost part of their identity and started behaving in in ways that were definitely beyond that of a psych experiment. And interestingly, the the various people who encountered the experiment didn't really question much about it, but Christina was the only one that did. Um, she questioned its morality. She said it had to stop. And after that, it did. Uh, she identified that toxic situation when she saw it. And she would actually later go on to marry the person who, Philip Zimbardo, who, who conducted the Stanford <laughs> prison, maybe to prevent him. No, I'm just kidding. No, um, yeah. He just <laughs> um, needed guidance. That's why yeah. he married her. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and so she later turned her career to really dissect this fascinating um, phenomenon of burnout and what it is and what causes it. And the big lesson that I, t I took a lot of lessons away from her uh, and especially her research that she's published over the last several decades. And the big one is exactly what burnout is. So we hear the word burnt out and we use it uh, casually, colloquially. Uh, we say, oh, I'm so burnt out when, when we're exhausted, when, when we're wiped, when we're depleted. But that actually isn't what burnout is. Exhaustion only comprises about a third of what it means to be burnt out. We do need to be exhausted, that feeling of just being totally depleted and wrecked. Uh, but we also, that's the first third of the burnout equation. The second third is cynicism, this uh, negativity that pervades everything it is that we do. And the third attribute of burnout is inefficacy. We need to feel also at the same time that we're exhausted and cynical that what we're doing is profoundly unproductive. We're not making a difference. We're not making a contribution. And so if you're feeling one of these things, exhausted, cynical, or unproductive or inefficacious, that's kind of a stepping stone to this full-blown phenomenon of burning out. And burnout is caused by one thing and one thing only, and that is chronic stress. It's the stress in our life that just doesn't let up. And this, of course, connects back to the technological distraction that we face throughout the day as well. When distractions are sources of stress, and when we find them threatening in some way, these can actually pile on to how much stress we're facing regularly and lead us closer to that point of being completely burnt out, this, this devastated uh, feeling. But luckily, there are ways of dissecting this phenomenon and understanding it more thoroughly and breaking down our situation so that we can uh, look at it from a proper perspective and understand what's causing it. So other than 
you know, taking a global cruise. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Hiring so people to do everything that you're doing. Yeah. All of those mm-hmm. things that are not possible. What are the elements that we should work on yeah. to diffuse it? It's not just working less. Yeah. And that that's I think the the key there is working less, you know, that's that's a part of it. Um there, but there are actually six individual dials that we can adjust if we're feeling like we're on our way to burnout. So if you have one of those um, one of those phenomenon where you're feeling exhausted or cynical or uh, this sense of inefficacy, you can use that as sort of a tripwire to break down that burnout situation. And so there are six dials that we can adjust. Uh, the first I- indeed is workload, as you alluded to. So it's how much work we have on our plate. And having a, a little bit more work to do than we have time to do it in is usually okay. You know, that time pressure is uh, what a deadline produces and it motivates us. It propels us forward. But when how much work we have to do just greatly eclipses how much time we have available for its completion, that's when we experience a great deal of chronic stress from that factor of the six. And by the way, I, I should say before you know, I guess they call this a, a tease, uh, before listing the, the other five, that the opposite of burnout is actually engagement. And so the opposite of these three factors, um, you know, instead of being exhausted, we're fired up. Instead of being cynical, we feel there's a light behind everything we do. Instead of feeling like we're not making a difference, we feel like we make a, a profound difference through our actions. And so these six factors cause burnout, but they can also lead to engagement, which is the opposite of burnout. Uh, the second factor is a lack of control. So that's when we're in how we, we do our work. The more control we have, the more autonomy we have, the more connected with the work uh, that, that we feel. Uh, insufficient reward is the third one. And we always think of money when we think of reward, but there's that, that is part of it. You know, money, salary, bonuses, stock options, that sort of thing. But being recognized for our contributions, uh, finding our work intrinsically valuable, uh, those things are also uh, part of the reward that we face from the work that we get or the lack thereof. The fourth factor is community. So how close we feel to those we work with. And that actually is one of the most motivating factors of the work that we do. Uh, hardly anything will make you more motivated than being close with somebody that you work with. Fairness is factor number five. So how fairly we're treated, how fairly work is assigned, how fairly we're promoted through a workplace. And the sixth and final factor is values. Uh, so values is, is a cloudy concept to uh, a lot of people, but it's really just on a deep level what matters to us. And values are more orientations rather than um, real things that are right or wrong. Uh Um, And some of us value individualism more than collectivism, for example. Some of us value conservatism more than self-development, as another example. And the more closely aligned our work is to what we value, uh, it's fascinating. We, We feel a sense of meaning when we look at how we're acting 
in our work and our life. And we can connect those actions downward to the core of who we are. Uh, so if we value kindness and we uh, do an act of service for somebody or volunteer, we feel a profound sense of meaning because we can observe ourselves manifesting those values through our actions. And so burnout, you know, in a nutshell, exhausted, uh, exhaustion, cynicism, and inefficacy that is caused by these six factors, these six dials, workload, lack of control, insufficient reward, community, fairness, and values. And they can all lead to engagement at the same time, too. I've been speaking with Chris Bailey, the author of How to Calm Your Mind, Finding Presence and Productivity in Anxious Times. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on Apple, Google, Spotify, and other podcast outlets. Biotech-related interviews are also individually podcast. Click through on technation.com or directly at biotechnation.com. Or subscribe separately through your favorite podcaster. In the second half of our show, teaching our immune systems to recognize our own tumors and eliminate them. Dr. Randy Schatzman the CEO of Bolt Biotherapeutics joins us. Stay with us. listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Chris Bailey, the author of How to Calm Your Mind, Find Presence and Productivity in Anxious Times. You write a lot about uh, the social media experiences, the digital experiences, which is very revealing. But I want to ask you about what you call super stimuli. Oh, yes. Because you want to avoid that. What is super stimuli? Yeah, so super stimuli... They, these objects of attention are more novel than pretty much anything else that we encounter in our days. And so uh, a few examples, you know, the takeout food is one that mo- most of them come from the analog world, but they're, or the digital world, but a few do come from the analog world too. Uh, takeout food is salty, sugary, fatty things that our ancient caveman brain uh, is wired to naturally enjoy. And the super stimuli, actually release more dopamine than other factors simply because they're more novel and highly processed. Uh, 
This can extend to elements of our digital world too, uh, where you know pornography is a, a taboo subject that isn't often talked about, but it's a highly processed, exaggerated version of something that we're wired to instinctually enjoy. Uh, social media is a highly processed, uh, exaggerated version, way more novel uh, form of communication, where instead of trading sentences and experience gossiping over the back fence <laughs> yeah that that hot goss with uh with, with our neighbor uh we we trade dopamine hits with one another over social media and so if you look at those altitudes of stimulation super stimuli are near the very top now i want to relate not only how we can substitute some things that we may be doing digitally for Let's do them in the analog mode with how we can start our day and end our day. And I, I want to start, I want to have our end our day, not like going to bed at night so much as end our work day, our yeah. self-imposed work day. Yeah. What, what can we do? How should we do that to optimize our, our uh, what would you say, our caveman wired <laughs> brain? Yeah, it's, it's remarkable, you know, that idea that, when we're at a high level of stimulation, we want to stay there. And one of the reasons that's the case is that dopamine begets dopamine. The more stimulated we make our mind, the more stimulation we end up craving. And we want to maintain this high level of stimulation. But the converse is true of that, where if we start our days and end our days on a, a slow note, you know, there's nothing wrong with slowness. What we lose in speed, we more than make up for in deliberateness. Uh, and for, it's for that reason that, uh, in my opinion, and looking at the research, I firmly believe this is true, that calm mornings lead to deliberate days. You know, when we start the day off on that slow note, uh, instead of picking up our phone, maybe picking up a, a newspaper, or a book. Uh, a newspaper quickly became one of my favorite things to subscribe. You mean on paper? Yeah. On paper? Old-timey paper. <laughs> Indeed. It, <'cause laughs> I, I started to think of it as more of a, a, a briefing than, you know, a, a news website, for example, that refreshed every few minutes. And, you know, looking at my day job, I, I didn't really need to be responsive to world events as they changed every two to three minutes. Uh, a daily briefing that had every update that I needed to know in my city, in my province, I, I live in Canada, um, and my country and the world uh, was, was sufficient for me. And substituting the digital aspect of that for the physical aspect uh, and consuming news just a little bit differently really had this profound effect. And the news is a great example of this. There, there's a study that was conducted around the 2013 Boston Marathon bombings. And the team of researchers looked at two groups of people. The first group of people were runners in the actual marathon. And the second group of people were those who watched six or more hours of news coverage about the Boston Marathon bombings. And what the team of researchers found was that those who watched the news coverage experienced a greater amount of stress than those who were in the marathon and personally affected by it and were more likely to develop post-traumatic stress disorder after, uh, after that consumption. And 
So these threats that we turn to from the digital world tend to, um, especially when they're super stimuli, like the, like the news is, um, and social media is, it tends to have this exaggerated influence on our thinking. And that goes to, to the power of the analog as well. Uh, in my opinion, and really reflecting on the dividing line between our digital and our analog worlds, in my opinion, uh, the analog world is where meaning is found, whereas the digital world is where efficiency is found. And it's for this reason that pretty much all of the work that I do, I do digitally. Uh, I, I find that it's still meaningful, and I find that I'm able to contribute more and respect my own time as well as we are chatting earlier about how lazy I am. I can kind of accommodate that by doing things more efficiently. But in terms of the analog, you know, if, if we think back to the, the most meaningful experiences of our life, they probably aren't digital. You know, it's the conversations that we have with friends around uh, a campfire. It's the meaningful moments that we experience, the, the, the compliments we receive in, in the most unexpected places. It's, it's the vacations, it's the trips, it's the, the things that we can truly process also because we're at a lower stimulation height. We're at a lower altitude of stimulation where we actually can reflect on the meaning and savor the experiences that we have. And we all have sort of a, a Venn diagram of sorts when it comes to the analog and the digital world. So if you imagine a, a Venn diagram in your head, two circles, right? Bit of overlap in the middle. There's the analog only activities and the digital only activities and the intersection between the two. So analog only, you know, includes everything from brushing our teeth to walking in nature. Uh, the digital only things include everything from social media to email and where they meet in the middle. That's where we can allocate what we do in both worlds. And because calm is found in the analog, we can actually uh, introduce elements of our work and our life uh, into the analog world and not actually lose too much in efficiency, but find more meaning and depth in them at the same time. Uh, writing and brainstorming we can do in the analog world on a whiteboard, on paper. Uh, keeping to-do lists in the analog world lets us slow down and be more deliberate. Uh, spending time with people in the analog world, right? People, the most meaningful uh, element of our life, of our existence. Why would we want to spend time with people digitally over analog, right? If, if it weren't for dopamine. Uh, reading a book, cracking open a, a good physical book and really sinking our mind into it. Uh, games, right? Playing board games versus some Candy Crush game on our phone. One's more stimulating, one's more meaningful, and it's easy to determine which one. Uh, the news, right? Another one that we can do the analog way. So analog moments exist at a lower level of stimulation, and they also help us find calm and meaning and depth. And it's a beautiful world that we need to get reconnected with. You know, the average person spends over 13 hours every day looking at screens. And I think we need to find more of a balance than that, if only for the, the health of our mind. I have one last question for you, because, you know, here I live near, we're 
a part of greater Silicon Valley here in yeah. San Francisco. Yeah. And we do have people who really know how to, uh, it used to say burn the midnight oil. Now it's uh, seemed to be working 24-7 with all the, you yeah. know, multiple iPhones and electronic. They got all kinds of stuff all around them. Yeah. Um, and I see a question. I hear a question that comes often, and that is, well, if I wasn't doing this, what would I be doing? So when you say to them what's meaningful, I'm not sure they can respond to it. We all value achievement to some extent, right? We all value making a contribution, but there are other values as well. Um, beyond just achievement. And this was something that I had to, you know, kind of a a knot that I encountered in my own work and in my own life, uh, where I I realized that most of what I did centered around accomplishing more. And this idea of more, 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 uh, in fact, going back to dopamine, dopamine is a chemical of stimulation, but it's also a neurochemical of acquisition. Uh, So much so that researchers refer to dopamine as the molecule of more. And in the same way that technology can be addictive, the pursuit of more can be addictive too, because it has the same uh, neurochemical underpinnings. And in fact, the more we invest in that technological life in our digital world, uh, the more likely we are to pursue that idea of more. But when when that pursuit of more doesn't really have boundaries, uh, it it leads to misery. It leads to this productive uh, misery where we become accomplishers that can't really find meaning in everyday things. That's the effect of anxiety on cognitive performance. Uh, Anxiety actually shrinks how much of a capacity we have to think. It makes us more distractible. It leads us to crave more novelty. Uh, It makes us less engaged. It leads to more negative self-talk. It leads us to find more threats in our environment, which can also derail our focus. It shrinks our working memory our our cognitive capacity by about 20%. So our work takes that much longer uh, on top of the other factors. And at the same time, we might burn out (laughs) when we're not uh, aligned (laughs) to what we do. Doing that. Yeah, exactly. exactly. (laughs) So I think there's so much more to finding calm than there is in this directionless pursuit of accomplishment. Well, Chris, it's been a real pleasure. I hope you come back and see us again. Yeah, nice to hang out with you. This is fun. My guest today is Chris Bailey. His book is How to Calm Your Mind, Finding Presence and Productivity in Anxious Times. It's published by Viking, an imprint of Penguin Random House. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Most of us have heard of HER2-positive breast cancer, but there are other HER2-related cancers, including HER2-positive gastric cancer, HER2-low breast cancer, and over a dozen others. Bolt Biotherapeutics is focused on this challenge and specifically teaching the immune system to recognize its own tumor and eliminate it. Dr. Randy Schatzman is Bolt's CEO. Dr. Schatzman, welcome back to the program. It's good to be with you again. Thank you. 
Now, we've heard a lot about the immuno-oncology treatments in recent years, stimulating your immune system to fight cancer. But I understand that they have been most effective against the so-called liquid tumors, such as blood cancer, uh, and they've been less effective against solid tumor cancers. Why is that? Well, what we have been attacking in terms of the immune system is actually what we call checkpoint inhibitors. And in this case, as as you know, the the tumor environment is very immune suppressive. And what the checkpoint inhibitors do actually is release that immune suppression. And it actually works well in a number of patients, both for liquid and solid types of cancers, uh, but it works for a, a smaller percentage. And there's a lot of patients today that are not addressed by this type of uh, a cancer therapy. Now, I know that Bolt Bio is, is really targeting solid tumors. Uh, What is your approach? So the approach that we're taking, Moira, is we're uh, we're targeting myeloid cells in the tumor microenvironment with the aim of training a patient's immune system to recognize their own tumor and thereby eliminate it. And the way we do this is by targeting myeloid cells that are in what we call the tumor microenvironment. Myeloid cell is a a key component of of what we call the innate component of our immune system. And what they are normally do is they're they're there to detect foreign invaders into a person's body, such as uh, microbes, bacteria, viruses, uh, recognize and eliminate those. And what we're doing at at Bolt is, is really hijacking that system and using it in a way to uh, teach the immune system that the cancer is now this foreign invader, and it's the target for elimination by the immune system. Now, I have to stop you there because people always talk about two parts to the immune system. Innate is built in. It's what you were born with. And the adaptive part is what you learn over time. And my experience has been is that people were always trying to teach this adaptive part to fight things, such as we get a, a COVID vaccine. And it's it's teaching you to recognize that spike protein uh, to say, no, we don't want you around here. Uh, but that... Y- but it makes sense. You know, it's like that's the part that learns. So we're going to work with that. You said innate. Are you working with the part that basically you were born with? So we're using that as the initiating event for retraining the immune system to recognize the patient's own tumor. Ultimately, after we activate and stimulate the innate immune system, we bridge into and a a response by the adaptive immune system. So first and foremost, with the innate immune system, we turn on what we call an an eat me signal. And those innate immune cells can actually target the cancer cell directly and and eat it and, and eliminate it. But at the same time, we take advantage of those cells once they've eaten the cancer cell, they will take elements of that cancer cell, in this case, we call them neoantigens, and they will present them on their surface to the adaptive immune system and train the adaptive immune system to recognize those specific proteins that exist on the cancer itself. So we get both components of the immune system actually coming to bear to eliminate the cancers in this case. 
Now, these myeloid cells, aren't they looking throughout the entire body? How do they not mistake other cells in our body for what you're looking for? So because what we're doing, we're specifically targeting the myeloid cells that are in the tumor microenvironment, and we do that with a tumor-targeting antibody. Um, and to that tumor-targeting antibody, we've attached a drug that's the, the key to stimulating the immune system and ultimately uh, activating the innate part of the immune system. Now, you're working on a number of cancers all in one trial, uh, and let's talk about that trial. It's the most advanced that Bolt has. And what surprised me, it was all about HER2. Now, most of us have heard about HER2-positive breast cancer, which is included in that trial, but you also have HER2-positive gastric cancer and HER2-low breast cancer, and they're all being studied in one clinical trial? Yes. So initially, the, the first phase of clinical trials in, in cancer um, is really about looking at the safety of this new drug that we're putting in patients. And for that, um, it, it, it really doesn't matter what cancer type we have. So the patients who come into our trial will express many different types of cancers. In this case, we have upwards of 18 different cancer types in the study itself. What is in common between these cancers is all of them express HER2 to a greater or lesser extent, because that's what we're using as our, what we call our GPS signal to get our drug into the tumor. I guess what I'm wondering here is, you know, for HER2 positive breast cancer, we always say, hey, why aren't we using Herceptin? You know, that's the that's the cancer drug from Genentech. Are you using this in addition to Herceptin, in place of Herceptin? How does that work? So we use a generic form of Herceptin as our targeting antibody to get our drug into the, the tumor microenvironment. And in this case, most of, the, or most if not all, of the patients who are coming into the study have already been treated with Herceptin uh, and have failed. So their tumor is progressing despite that treatment, and they need something more and something different. So we take advantage of the uh, the fact that their tumors all express HER2, so we can use Herceptin, or in this case, the generic to Herceptin, to target those particular tumors and bring our novel drug into the tumor itself for treatment. And I guess for those people who are in the biotech industry, we might as well say, when you say generic, you mean biosimilar because for most people they are like, you're talking generic, right? It's like generic is to pills that come off brand and biosimilar is to these biotech drugs. Uh, so that's what you're talking about there. That is correct. Congratulations. At the time of this interview, you've actually completed enrollment for this uh, phase one, two study. Uh, tell me how many people are in the study and what is it like if I'm a subject in this study? So to date, we've treated a little over 100 patients, uh, again, with 18 different tumor types, solid tumors in this case, uh, all of them expressing HER2. Um, so for a patient coming into the trial, they will be screened initially to ensure that their, their patient has uh, their, their the tumor expresses HER2 on the surface, and therefore our agent can target it. Uh, and then 
uh, what they will experience is on, uh, they will get an infusion of our drug, um, and then they will come back every three weeks for an additional administration of that drug, but also screening uh, to see the impact of the drug on their particular cancer. Now, how do you find the status of their tumor? So we uh, we look at patients by CT scanning, so we can visualize their cancer in a number of different you know organs uh, in their body. And in addition, we will usually take a, a biopsy of their cancer so that we can measure uh, the the biology in that cancer to show that our drug is actually activating the biology that's of interest to us. So this goes on every three weeks. When does it stop? Um, we usually treat patients until they progress, um, meaning that their their cancer can starts growing again. Uh, what we are finding so far is is that we're able to see you know good clinical response and durable responses uh, in some of our patients. I mean, first and foremost, this part of the the study is about safety to ensure that this new technology, when first introduced into humans, will will do no harm. And so far, we've checked that box. The second is to look at the biology in the tumors of these patients to confirm that we are activating the uh, uh, markers of the innate immune system and markers of the adaptive immune system so we know our mechanism of action is being activated. And then finally, we're looking at clinical response to ensure that, that patients are, are benefiting from this. What we are finding um, is that all of the above are happening uh, in, in a subset of these patients. And so the next steps with this development program are really about trying to understand who are the patients that are likely to benefit the most from this. And that will be the phase two part of the study that will start next. Now, I have to say that this is not Bolt's only trick, as we say. You're really going after this. And I know that you have a different program also uh, working with the myeloid cells uh, and also with a, sort of a different approach. Indeed, we do. So we're looking, our, our focus is really to be experts on myeloid cells and using those as an important system by which we can uh, retrain a patient's immune system to kill their own cancer. So there's different ways that we are taking or we are testing uh, to, to activate those immune system, or those immune cells. So far, the one that we've been talking about utilizes an antibody that has a drug attached to it to activate those. But we have a second program that in fact is an antibody itself with no drug attached, and that antibody directly activates these myeloid cells within the tumor microenvironment. And it's just a the, the outcome is the same or is intended to be the same. Uh, it's just a different way of actually uh, modulating, in this case, the myeloid cells within the tumor. So in the first case that we talked about, that's in the phase one, two, um, it's the Herceptin or the Herceptin generic with your drug attached. And in this one, you create the drug itself. In this one, the, uh, the targeting antibody is the drug itself. So it's, the, it's sort of the, the equivalent of Herceptin in this case, 
uh, but a different antibody that's able to activate the myeloid cells directly. And that is a proprietary invention that the scientists at, at Bolt were able to do. Are you going after the same cancers? Similar types of cancers, yes. So it'll be solid cancers, usually cancers that have failed all of the other current standard of care today, and their patients that obviously are in desperate need for some kind of a, a new treatment that will uh, help them manage their, their cancers. Now, this particular approach is still in preclinical. You're still in the discovery phase here. Uh, but the first one that you're in, it, well, I think we call it 1001, uh, that particular compound is in phase one, two. When do you expect that to uh, come to fruition or come to its end? In the 1001 program? Yeah. So the 1001 program, that, that development program will go on for, for a number of years further while we continue to understand, again, what's the best way to administer it to our patients, who are the patients that are likely to benefit. And once we understand that, uh, we'll, we'll have some discussions with the FDA about ultimate uh, future approval for that. Oh, I should also mention that we're finding you know, broad interest from the phar pharmaceutical industry uh, in working with us uh, to uh, understand what we call the Bolt Toolbox and how our drugs could improve our partners' uh, therapeutics. Uh, one of those, which is a standout partner that we have is Bristol-Myers Squibb, and they're working with us on the, the 1001 program. We're combining their drug nivolumab uh, with 1001 to understand whether it can improve the efficacy of 1001 in the patients that are treated with both drugs. Their interest is, is can, we, uh, can we benefit patients who by themselves uh, are, are, are under-responding to, to the BMS drug and by combining with 1001 could uh, improve response for patients who typically do not respond to it. Well, I think the, the promise here that we're all excited about, again, is to treat patients who are coming into our study that have seen, in some cases, these are patients that have seen 10, 11, 12 other therapies and failed those, and they're looking for new mo modalities uh, for managing their cancer. And in some cases, uh, we're, we're seeing that the, the Bolt therapeutics are able to help them in managing their cancers after failing all these other drugs. And for us, that's, uh, I think, an exciting place to be. Dr. Schatzman, thank you so much. I hope you come back and see us again on Biotech Nation. Pleasure to be with you again, Moira. Thank you. My guest today is Dr. Randy Schatzman, the CEO of Bolt Biotherapeutics. More information is available on the web at boltbio.com. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. TechNation and Biotech Nation are productions of TechNation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.